0: This episode is for you if you're prone to pushing yourself too hard, too regularly, for too long. You're used to using that harsh inner self-talk to motivate yourself because, hey, it's familiar and it works. On the outside, you look really successful, but you're tired, like bone tired. You secretly wonder how long this can go on. But you don't have a lot of time to think about it because day after day you're sucked into the vortex of your diary. There's no time to breathe, let alone think. And yet, somehow this very podcast episode has ended up in your earphones. Serendipity, hey? Hi friend, I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, and this is Enough the Podcast, a show for overachievers, perfectionists, and anyone who drives themselves relentlessly. If you're ready to do things differently, but aren't sure where to start, you're in the right place. And I'm really glad you're here. Today's highly practical episode is about how we can learn how to better regulate our stressed out bodies. You'll learn why stress gets stuck in your body to begin with and why you end up in that fried spacey state. I know you know the one. You'll learn how to motivate yourself with self-compassion instead of harshness. And yes, it still works even better, actually. You will learn some practical ways to get stress out of your system, including a kissing technique that you've got to try, stay tuned, and a self-touch exercise. And no, it's not that kind of self-touch, but hey, you do you. This particular one that we're going to try today, you can do at work. But anyway, I'm just going to stop that right in its tracks. My guest today is the brilliant Sarah Norad, who's a coach, a mindfulness guide, who's certified MBSR, which is Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Her many other accolades include Reiki master, yoga teacher, and I'm pretty sure she's Yoda, frankly. She's also a trauma-informed educator. In short, she is the real deal, and I'm so excited to share her with you. I drop us right into the conversation where I'm asking Sarah about the dark side of overachieving, the stuff she sees in her clients that no one else sees because their success looks so dazzling. Ready? Let's dive in.
1: I would say that the the underside you know that we don't see about most high performing individuals is the fact that self compassion is one of the biggest challenges for for us people <laughs> and that that self compassion needs to be brought in for us to be even more high performing, but not from, not from a way that burns us out, but from a way that we can actually kind of enjoy our lives while achieving our goals and learning how to motivate ourselves, not through the inner critic and through that kind of drill sergeant that says, work harder, you got to, you know, but actually through a way of, of inner cheerleading um, can be really uh, foundational for that. So, if you're, you know, listening and you're a perfectionist and a higher achiever, self-compassion might might be an avenue for you to explore. And it's not going to stop you from being a high achiever, because that's the belief so often that I come across with executives is that they believe that if they are compassionate to themselves, they will stop achieving. That is not often a true belief, but that is a belief that is causing a lot of suffering. Even just holding the possibility that that belief, that, that I have to be hard on myself for me to highly achieve, holding the possibility that that is incorrect, that that might not be the truth is the first step. and And getting curious about that whether that is true and getting really clear about noticing failure. How, how good am I with failure? So we want to get so good at failure that it doesn't even feel bad. That would be an ideal goal. And how, how we get there is through self-compassion. And the thing is, is that doesn't increase more failure. It just helps us with our resilience and recovery time after failure your high achieving your passion your drive is not going to change when you're not hearing the inner critic saying you're so stupid you've never been good enough you need this other thing to prove yourself why didn't you plan a b and c about this project and you know the strategy and it would have had a different outcome that is taking up a lot of energy right there that's taking a lot of you know a lot a lot of your mental, your emotional, it's hard on your nervous system. If instead we get good with self-compassion and, and understanding I'm going to make mistakes, you know, of course it would be upsetting. Of course, it's upsetting when I make a mistake, you know, of course, of course I wanted it to work out differently, but instead of going into the, that inner critical voice, that's hard on us, that also creates the burnout and, uh, you know, amygdala hijack, right? Because it feels like there's a fight going on inside as soon as we go. So we don't want the fight inside. So if we can go, okay, you know, this sucks, accept the situation. This sucks. I wanted it to be different. What am I going to do about it now? I really believe in myself. I know I'm highly intelligent. I know what I have. I know I have what it takes to find a new pathway to success.
0: If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you'll know that self-compassion is the number one tool for developing a kinder, more easeful relationship with yourself. I want to visit a really great tool that self-compassion teacher Catherine Kell shared with us in episode 10. This tool can take you as little as 30 seconds, though you can build it into a longer meditation or journaling practice if you prefer. It's based on Kristen Neff's self-compassion break. So Catherine, can you please remind us of that
2: tool again? The first thing to do is just stop and acknowledge what you're feeling. I mentioned validation before, like validating what you're feeling. Yeah, And that can be, I feel really angry right now, or this is really hard. This is stressful, or just this is shit. This feels shitty to me right now. And there's something in that validation which just stops everything else from pouring for a moment. And then the second step is about recognizing that you're not alone. Okay, that that we have a shared human experience. Suffering is not dished out in the same way for everyone, you know, but everyone will experience some form of suffering in their life. That's human. Um, So maybe just saying to yourself, I'm not alone or others have felt like this or. I don't know, I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way. Something like that is step two and sit with that for a moment. And then the third step is really just about being a bit curious about what you need and exploring what you need. So that might just be repeating a mantra to yourself. May I be kind to myself in this moment that is hard. May I be kind to myself, may I be kind to myself or kind of tune in and say, what is it that I need? If we want to learn more powerful tools for self-regulation,
0: particularly when we're feeling too much autonomic arousal, AKA stress, let's learn a bit more about the nervous system.
1: So our nervous system is foundational to how we function in the world and with ourselves. I like to say it's the filter through which we see all things through. So that and our hormones. <laughs> so those, got, those are kind of the two double headers. We are really affected by our biology. And to think that we can just heal our patterns or recover from burnout through a mental game is very fallible. It's, it's not effective because our bodies will win. Our bodies will win. If our nervous system is unregulated, we won't be able to think properly. We aren't able to see the world from a positive kind of growth mindset. Because when our our nervous system is... highly activated. So if someone is in performance mode, if they are perfectionists and they're always striving or looking for the next dopamine hit, that means they're in the sympathetic place of the nervous system, which is a highly responsive, reactive place that we're only meant to stay in for a limited amount of time.
0: You're at work and there's this person who yanks your chain. Your instinct is to give him a high five, in the face, with a chair. But you regroup because you must be civilized and socially appropriate. And in all seriousness, violence is never the answer, folks. But you're sitting there swallowing all your feelings, and your brain has still activated a stress response, though you're in a civilized meeting and not in some barroom brawl where you're physically in danger. But still, your body's pumping adrenaline and glucocorticoids into your bloodstream lest you need to run or fight so your body is actively triggered and ready for action. And this kind of stuff might be happening to you regularly, which isn't how we're meant to function all the time. In their book, Burnout, Solve Your Stress Cycle, Emily and Amelia Nagoski talk about the need to complete the stress cycle response. What happens with all those feelings you've just had? Pushing down... (sighs) the clenched jaw, the clenched fists, the, the thoughts, Ugh. all of your body is activated, right? So this person at work is yanking your chain. Well, apparently those things are simmering away in your chemistry, waiting to be completed. So our bodies are simmering in our own stress juices. Here's what Emily and Amelia Nagoski say about the effects on just one system in our bodies, the cardiovascular. Chronically activated stress response means chronically increased blood pressure, which is like constantly turning a fire hose on in your blood vessels when those vessels were designed by evolution to handle only a gently flowing stream. The increased wear and tear on your blood vessels leads to increased risk for heart disease. That's how chronic stress leads to life-threatening illness. And this happens, remember, in every organ system in your body. Digestion, immune functioning, hormones. We are not built to live in that state. So I ask Sarah to explain a little bit more about the nervous system in particular. We're hearing a lot about it in social media these days. I asked her to go with the Lego blocks basics here, though. And if you want more depth, check out Tice Sky's comprehensive episode on the nervous system, which will be in the show notes. Okay, Sarah, nervous system 101, please.
1: So the idea with our nervous system used to be that there was just the, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system so parasympathetic is rest, digest, heal sympathetic is fight flight freeze so the idea was that we we went between these two places if we were kind of sitting in the challenge zone we would be in the sympathetic we would be you know fight flight or freeze we would be looking for danger we would be solving problems we'd be highly stressed there'd be a lot of cortisol release, there would be hormones acting that would keep us highly alert. And that high alert is what we kind of want to be aware of. That is, that's the high burnout zone. You kind of bring yourself back to the parasympathetic, which is I'm relaxed. I'm okay. Everything's safe. I can solve this problem, but I can do do so in a peaceful way. I can rest, digest. My organs are functioning, my digestion is working again, from a biological standpoint, I can sleep properly. And then Stephen Porges came in with a a lot of uh, body therapy research that he did, where he discovered actually, while the vagus nerve is incredibly important. So a nerve in our nervous system that actually has two branches. It has the ventral vagal branch. So I like to think of it as a vent going up, the ventral vagal and then the dorsal vagal branch. And that's actually part of the autonomic nervous system. That's, that is the parasympathetic part actually has these two branches in it. So we want to be in the, and stop me if this is too much information, but we want to be in the ventral vagal um, response of our vagus nerve. That is the place where we are highly creative, where we are connected to our genius, where we are able to feel safe, well, inspired. And the key here too is connected, interconnectedness. We have a high sense of interconnectedness and safety when we're in the ventral vagal. So that is the ideal spot for us to hang out in, for us to work from, for us to have relationships in, for us to have our free time in. And and then the dorsal vagal, is actually shut down.
0: Okay, so you know I like to keep things really practical on the show. I asked Sarah to give us an example of what this dorsal vagal shutdown could look like in real life.
1: Say you go to an event, and there's lots of people, and at first it's exciting. You're in your ventral vagal. You're, oh, I want to connect with these people. You know, this is interesting. There's And then, and then you have some conversations that go well. And then maybe you have a conversation that doesn't go so well. You're, you're chatting with someone who for some reason is triggering to you. Maybe they're asking questions that feel a little too personal or that bring you into kind of that hypervigilant mode. So then your system gets overwhelmed. Then you've noticed, so this is kind of a very real kind of play by play. Then you would notice, I want to pull away. I just want to leave here. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to get out here as quickly as I possibly can. So that would be the dorsal vagal shutdown. I just want to get away. I want to shut down. I can't deal with this situation anymore. Let's
0: dive deeper into the dorsal vagal shutdown. So think back to the work situation with the colleague who yanks your chain or if you remember the previous episode where megan carl talks about the chronic stress she experienced check that out if you haven't already she was head of basketball for north america at nike and worked for a bullying boss so her weight was up her blood pressure was up she was having hallucinations and couldn't sleep she stopped exercising or finding joy in anything basically she was receding into herself disappearing it sounds very much like megan was stuck in dorsal vagal shutdown. And remember, this is a state we're meant to pass through, not set up camp in. And it sounds too like Megan wasn't completing her many, many stress cycles. So it all starts to compound internally. Just using her example here to try to make it real for you. So our guest Sarah explains how in cases like this, when we push ourselves too hard, too long, our system tries giving us the memo to stop and return to ventral vagal, to that place where we can recover. Let's get back to Sarah.
1: We can't stay there for too long. It's it's really hard on our bodies um, because of the hormones that are produced there. And, And we're meant to regulate. We're meant to go back and forth. That's the thing about all these different areas is we're meant to move through them. We're not meant to stay in one area. But unfortunately, our high performance culture really tends to us staying in the sympathetic. So then we get we start to get burnt out. Then we start to feel depressed. Maybe we notice the anxiety first. Then that would encourage the kind of the the dorsal vagal to bring us back into shutdown so it's trying so what we look if we can befriend our, our nervous system functions and actually say it's actually trying to balance us it's actually trying to give us a note like hey you know this is too much you've been going too hard for too long this this isn't actually healthy so it pulls us back into kind of a shutdown mode so how
0: do we create a new pathway to success that doesn't involve pushing ourselves so relentlessly? Well, self-compassion, as we discussed. So you've got that three-step practice to keep up your sleeve. Emily and Amelia Nagoski, the authors I referred to earlier, offer a few suggestions in their book on how to complete our stress cycles. Number one, physical activity. Between 20 and 60 minutes, most days should complete the stress response cycle. Number two, positive social interaction. So look for opportunities in your day to offer a compliment or do an act of kindness. For instance, this will reassure your brain that the world does have safe places. Number three, laughter. And I'm talking proper belly laughs. It regulates your emotions. So call a friend who cracks you up or watch something hilarious on Netflix. Number four, affection. The authors refer to 20-second hugs, which might sound excruciatingly long, but it lowers blood pressure, heart rate, and improves your mood. So, yeah, you might want to choose your person carefully with that length of hug in mind. It might be a bit weird with Uncle Larry, who you only see at weddings and funerals. <laughs> Just saying. Anywho, if you're in a relationship, you can also try kissing your partner for six seconds every day. And that's like six seconds in one go, as opposed to six times one second pecks on the cheek. This tells your body that you are safe because you wouldn't be doing a lip lock with anyone for that long, unless you felt really into them. So this six second kiss every day can also help you to complete the day's stress response cycle. So I like the idea of stacking some of these practices together, like working out, plus some compliment giving, laughter, a long hug, and a sizzling smooch every day. Next, Sarah is going to give us another powerful intervention, the breath, and how to use it to help regulate your system. So
1: Sarah, give us a practice, please. One of the the simple ones that I like to teach right off the bat is belly breathing. And what can be really good to get into, into the body, connected to the body too, because sometimes when we're either highly stimulated in the sympathetic or shut down in the dorsal, we really don't feel our bodies much anymore. We have either kind of checked out or we're just vibrating at such a high level that we don't notice what's here. So the body can be a really good grounding tool to bring us back into our healthy ventral vagal place. So uh, you can do it now and the audience can do it too. So you can place a hand, one hand, on your chest just lightly there and then one hand on the belly and I just want you to just notice where you're breathing so which hand is moving more when you breathe
0: mine is my chest
1: okay yeah actually mine too so we're both a little more stimulated right now which makes sense right we're having this conversation and um, we're engaged so to kind of Relax us a little bit more. We want the lower hand to be moving too. We want our belly to be moving. So usually if our upper hand is moving, we're breathing in our chest. So and we're and those are shorter breaths. So that's stimulating the sympathetic nervous system. So we want to calm it down more. And one really effective way to do that is longer breaths into the belly. So you can just start imagining that you are breathing into that lower hand. So affecting that lower hand by feeling your belly like a little balloon on your inhale and on your exhale, just letting that balloon deflate and then inhaling into that belly, softening that belly and then exhaling, just letting that belly deflate. Then what we're gonna do, we're gonna inhale, and then I want you to exhale, make that exhale a little bit longer than your inhalation. And then again, so say if you inhale for three seconds, one, two, three, I want you to exhale for four seconds, one, two, three, four, inhale for three, One, two, three, exhale. Let that belly release for four. Good, then you can just bring the hands down on your lap beside you. Just notice how you feel.
0: I'm still breathing more in the belly and it's amazing how just even in a couple of breath cycles, it can really feel
1: very grounding. Well, and we're giving ourselves a moment to pause too. So, which is self-care, you know, and we're getting out of the, the problem solving, the uh, perfectionism practice There's really, there's really no perfect way to do this. We're just trying to breathe into the belly a little more than into our chest. And that extended exhalation that we did is also important. That's a wonderful way to get us out of the sympathetic, because every time we inhale, we're actually, our heart rate increases a little bit. When we exhale, our heart rate decreases a little bit. So if we can extend that exhale a little bit more, we're calming our system, we're calming our nervous system. We're building that resilience to come out of the sympathetic and back into the ventral bagel. So another technique that I like to teach is called the Havening Technique. It belongs to a larger group of methods called uh, psychosensory therapies. So it's supposed to be a healing modality that helps individuals with um, kind of recode traumatic neural pathways. So fancy way to say it's soothing. It soothes you. There's actually three movements in this practice. They're very simple. You can do them anywhere. I'll share the first one with you because you don't need to do all of them. But basically um, what it is, is you give yourself kind of a self hug. So you can put your right hand over to your left shoulder or as close as it goes. Your left hand over to your right shoulder or as close as it goes. So you kind of have this self hug with your arms crossed in front of you. And then you just slide your fingertips down, each side of the arms down to your elbow. And then you bring your hands up again to your shoulders or as close as possible as you can get. And then you just slide them down to your elbow. And you just keep doing that action. It's almost like when someone would be comforting a child or you would be receiving a hug from someone and they're soothing you through through running their hands, you know, along the sides of your arms. So we're doing that to ourselves. Let your body get a little heavier. You can even close your eyes. And I like to encourage clients to use like a mantra, like I am safe. One other one, which is kind of a cognitive practice. So it's called setting your reticular activating system. We have this neuron bundles, again, the the base, the back of the, the head, the back of the brain. So that actually filters information and filters actually a very small amount of information so that we're not overwhelmed, which is great. We need that, we need filtering systems um, within, our, within our body, within the machine that is us. The thing about the reticular activating system and these neuron bundles is that they get habituated, which is you know the idea of kind of neural pathways, neuroplasticity, but they get stuck seeing, filtering the same information so if we have been living in, you know, that um, sympathetic or that shutdown and be having negative thoughts or seeing problems or trying to solve problems all the time, that's what our um, reticular activating system is going to be filtering and looking for all the time. We just need to retrain our reticular activating system to filter different things. So this is actually the science behind why gratitude lists work why people are so you know that was a huge thing right oprah was on it all the gratitude gratitude right because we're retraining then those neuron bundles to see the good to notice the good what you can just begin to do is you can start listing the things that you would like to retrain your brain your reticular activating system to filter in So what I like to do, you know, you can, you can look for things that you appreciate about yourself, that you did well that day. So you're not looking for problems to solve. You're not looking for dangers. You're not trying to figure things out. You're appreciating, you're shifting into appreciation. So say, you know, wow, I had a really great conversation with Mandy today. I really enjoyed a moment where I just stared at the trees. Whatever it is, you know, oh, I'm really in my routine of brushing my teeth twice a day. It can be the simplest or the biggest things, you know, oh, I I like the feeling of my sheets on my leg. Whatever it is, you're just making a conscientious list of kind of positive things to note that feel that help you feel safe and secure. And, you know, you can do that 30 seconds to five minutes, and that's it. If you did it twice a day, That would be incredibly helpful to help shift out of the kind of the amygdala hijack, the fear that starts to happen when our nervous system is unregulating.
0: I especially love this rejigging our reticular activator exercise, which retrains us to see a more balanced view of life rather than our brain filtering for threat and what sucks and what could go wrong all day long. I've started doing this exercise for a couple of weeks since I recorded this episode with Sarah. In those little down moments of the day, like while you're waiting for the kettle to boil, or when you're brushing your teeth, or standing in the shower, or before falling asleep, I ask myself, what's brilliant in my life right now? Or what am I really grateful for today? Or what am I really looking forward to? Things that are positive, things that are good. And as soon as I ask myself the question, but a bing but bang the answers come hard and fast. So it's not like there's a shortage of good stuff. Who knew? For the overachievers and perfectionists in particular, and this is purely from my sample study of myself and my many coaching clients, there's this tendency to fixate on threat, on what's wrong, on the failures, on where things are lagging or where they're not where they air quotes should be. And this can feed us into using negative drivers to motivate ourselves, which has the knock-on effect of driving the overgiving and overdoing behaviors that can land us in the sympathetic or the dorsal vagal state that Sarah's been teaching us about. I ask every guest to lay a brick of wisdom. And whatever you're present to right now that you would like to leave with listeners, it could be a phrase, it could be a thought. It could be a mantra, it could be a practice and without getting too cerebral about it, like just checking in what really feels like it's present for you, for listeners in this moment, what would you say?
1: You know, I would say a mantra that can be taken on for just, you know, the things that we've talked with today about the nervous system and is, is my body is my friend. So the more we can befriend you know, our different stages of, of reactivity and stimulus and shutdown and hyperarousal, the more we can learn how to work with them in a kind of highly productive and growth-producing way. And using compassion is always the best approach for for this work. And knowing that all the systems of our body are highly intelligent and that they are trying to guide us some way in some way so we're not bringing in regulation to try to control and suppress we're actually bringing in regulation to befriend and support
0: well wasn't that just a fruit salad of ideas for you to take away which one are you going to action the six second kiss maybe or the reticular activator rejig the belly breathing maybe I love the simplicity of using something we need to do anyway, like breathing, to self-regulate our stress response and to help complete the stress response cycle. Sarah's belly breathing exercise lines up with one I learned recently from Dr. Andrew Huberman, the Stanford neuroscience professor, where you take in two deep inhales through the nose with no exhale in between. So you inhale, then you inhale again, and then you exhale your lungs to empty through the mouth. He says that this activates the neural circuit specifically for calming. So maybe stack on a 20-second hug and some belly laughs. Get creative. Next time on the pod, I have international mega-stylist Anita Farron-Clark on the show. We talk about how style can be a way of experimenting with who we want to be. Anita shares how All the messaging from her childhood had her completely confused about her own style, till she said enough in her late 20s. Here's a little snippet of what you can expect.
3: I've had years and years of being invisible because growing up, I was not fair enough. I was not slim enough. I was called aubergine by my family, dark and round. Um, I was called Sparrow Legs because my legs were too thin. I was subject of a lot of racism. I was called Paki and the N-word at school, blah de blah de blah I was criticized by my mother, by my sisters, because, you know, Indians generally, sorry to generalize here, don't have a filter. By the time I got to 27, I was like so bloody confused because I was told not to do this, not to wear that, not to appear too confident, be more shy, be a bit more coquettish. Then it comes to a point where you are so confused in your mind that you think, do you know what? I need to just
0: find my own way. I'm looking forward to sharing Anita with you in two weeks. And in the meantime, find Sarah Norad on Instagram and on her website, saranorad.com, and share this episode with that person who you know is super successful, but is also really hard on themselves. Their nervous system will thank you. Thank you for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.